It's good to see all of you this morning. Thank the Lord that he has seen fit to gather us again for another week. Uh, let me invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to John 3.16. That may not be uh, too difficult to find. We're starting in what is perhaps the best known verse in the entire Bible as we continue our study of John's Gospel. Certainly that has been the case in the past. Uh, there may be some other verses vying for that, for that spot of most recognized. Uh, Matthew 7 has been suggested, judge not lest ye be judged, uh, and such. No matter which one takes the top uh, position in our society today, this remains a very impactful verse, doesn't it? And rightly so. Um, all the more reason then, if that be the case, that we understand it in the context it appears in, uh, and that we ring it out for all the truth and beauty that there is inside of it and that we can gain. We'll be looking at verses 16 to 21 this morning. Um, there's something I'll say. I'll ask you to just look at this, at this passage uh, before you here. I tried to decide on the best place to say this, and I think I'll just say it at the beginning. Some of you may not be happy with me about this. I have no idea. I'm curious to see what you think. Um, so I'll tell this to you because it's going to shape some of how I speak about these verses. And if it bothers you, then I'll try to tell you why you don't need to be bothered by this. Okay? Uh, the question is this. Who is speaking here in these verses? It's not as simple a question as, as it may seem. I don't think that what we are about to read this morning are Jesus' words. They are his words in the account of scripture since, but I don't think Jesus said this to Nicodemus. I think Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus is over, that it ended at verse 15, and the Apostle John is now giving us commentary on what he has said to Nicodemus uh, and reflecting on Jesus' statements. The reason that this is, is tricky for us uh, is that they didn't use things like quotation marks when they were recording uh, these things in, in Greek. And so what you have to do when it comes to a, a narrative quotation, you've got people talking to each other. When does this one stop talking? Well, you have to use, you have to judge from the sense of the quoted narrative. And usually that's not hard to detect, but sometimes it is. And this is one of those times where it's, it's hard to, to be sure about when Jesus stopped speaking with Nicodemus. We'll see another one of these, by the way, later on in this chapter, verses 30 and 31, this is going to come up as well, where does John the Baptist stop talking, or does he stop talking? Um, it, it becomes a, just a, an interpretive call uh, as, as to that. Uh, why would I suggest that what we're about to read is the Apostle John talking now? Um, I, I'm going to suggest that. There are many who, who, who think that way, but it is not, uh, it's, not a, it's not without controversy. The reason that I'm persuaded that way is that there are things that are said in verses 16 to 21 um, that only John says anywhere else in, the go in this gospel account. It, this is a very John-sounding section here. Um, verse 15, which we ended on last week, is not that way. Verse 15 has Jesus uh, speaking of himself as the Son of Man. That's very clearly Jesus still talking to Nicodemus. Because only Jesus uses that phrase in John's gospel uh, and, and in reference to himself. That is his favorite way to speak of himself, is to speak of the Son of Man. 
That's something that would be on Jesus' lips. Um, and as I said, only he uses that phrase in the whole Gospel of John, except for one place where he has been referring to himself as the Son of Man several times, and the crowd says, who is this Son of Man? That's the only time that anyone else says Son of Man. Um, and by the way, let me mention, some of you have asked me about this. We have now heard Son of Man brought up twice in John's Gospel, and we haven't said anything about it. We are going to. Um, I think soon we're going to give a whole Sunday morning just to understanding what Jesus is doing with this title of Son of Man. Um, that's not this morning, but it is coming. So if that's been bothering you, you can keep being patient. I appreciate that. Um, anyway, that, verse 15 is clearly Jesus. But verse 16 is different. Now we find wording that only John uses here and wording that he uses again and again. One of those is the word monogenes, only begotten. Uh, John uses that word many times in reference to Jesus, both here and in 1 John. Uh, and Jesus never refers to himself with that term anywhere else. If this is Jesus talking to Nicodemus, it's the only time that Jesus speaks of himself as the only begotten. Uh, also, John, the Apostle John, is in love with this particular verb that's used here to mean to love, agapao. John loves this word. He uses it 36 times in this gospel. That is more than twice as many times as any other New Testament writer uses this verb, except for one book. So he uses it 36 times here. There is one other book in the New Testament that uses it 31 times. Guess which one that is? 1 John. He's at it again. He just can't get enough of of speaking of God's love in Christ with this word. Um, so this is a very John thing to hear here. And if it is Jesus, it's very unusual Jesus. So you're going, uh, the whole reason I say this is because I don't want you to stumble when I speak of these as the Apostle John's words here. All right? um, now, why should you not care very much about this, one way or the other? Well, you shouldn't care because every word of Holy Scripture is equally true and authoritative and inspired. I hope that's clear for us this morning. If you have a red-letter Bible that puts Jesus' words in red, I have one of those, that's what this is, uh, the red letters are not more important or authoritative than any of the other words, right? All of this is God-breathed revelation, um, so that's why it doesn't really matter. Okay, so hopefully I haven't bursted too many bubbles or offended anyone at this point? If so, you can talk with me after. I don't mind. Our, uh, our time this morning centers really on uh, the opening verse of verse 16. Uh, it, is, it is understandable when it comes in tandem with what has appeared before and what comes after it. I think we'll see that here in a moment. Uh, but I would begin us with, with this statement before we stand and read together. I think what we're about to see this morning is the Bible telling us, in perhaps the clearest terms of all, how God has loved the world? How has God loved the world? Let me read John chapter 3, verses 16 to 21 from the English Standard Version. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, 
that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. I want to suggest to you that this entire section this morning before us hinges on the act, God's act of giving his only begotten son. And so we have one question to think about here. This really could frame our entire morning. And the question is, why? Why did God give his only son? Depending on where we go in God's word, there are a number of really good answers to that question. We read a good one last week. We, we looked at Ezekiel 36 and saw there God, you could put it this way, God gave his son to vindicate his great name. That's a reason God gave his son. That's an excellent answer to that question. There are a number of those. Here, what John is directing our attention to, he is answering that question in particular reference to what he calls the world. This is not the first time we've heard John talk about the world. And so our answer this morning is going to stand in reference to the same thing, in reference to the world. Uh, there are three ways I want us to answer this question because I believe John gives us these three answers here. Why did God give his only son? Here's what we will see. He gave his only son, verse 16, because he loved the world. He gave his only son, verses 16 to 19, in order to love those in the world. And he gave his only son, verses 20 and 21, to rescue sinners out of the world. That's how we're going to move through our text this morning. First, you can look really specifically at verse 16. God gave his only son because he loved the world. We need to look at this statement carefully here that we begin with. There are some things that we need to be clear on in terms of what he's even saying here. Let me read verse 16 again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What is written here, I would suggest something to you, that it would be better understood by us if we put the word so in front of God rather than after. It would sound like this. Just listen to this. How does that change this? For so God loved the world. If your mind works like mine, maybe, maybe I'm often in right field. But what that does for me is it gives me the sense that I mean so in a particular way. You know, we can use the word so in two senses in English. We can talk about extent or manner. I love that so much. That's extent. Um, I like it just so. That's a particular manner. Uh, thus, thusly. Uh, our word can have both of those meanings in, its, in the spectrum of its, of its understanding. 
the word that is used here behind so doesn't have both of those possible meanings. It never means extent. It only means manner. John is telling us, this is how God loved the world, colon. Is it true that God loved the world so much that he gave his son? Certainly, that's, that's just fine. That's not what he's saying here. He is describing to us how God has loved the world. And you need to notice as well, then, that that really connects us back to verse 15 as well. We saw verse 15 last week, uh, Jesus speaking about the lifting up of the Son of Man so that those who believe in him might have eternal life. This is indeed what God has chosen to provide as he has chosen to love the world. He gave his only son to be lifted up, and he did it as an act of love. It's a statement that we are so accustomed to uh, that we are very prone. You know there's a danger in for the passages we're very familiar with, there's a particular danger, and that is that we can tend to brush over them and, and, and fail to think carefully about the implications or about what's underlying them. I think that's the case here. There is something potentially shocking in the reality of this statement. And what's key is to remember what we saw back when we were in chapter 1. We, we noticed back in John 1 that the world for John, the world is the created order, especially of human beings, the created order in rebellion against its maker. I want to reread something for you. I, I read some of this to us uh, a number of weeks ago when we were there. This is from D.A. Carson. He's exactly right about this. He says, when John tells us that God loves the world, far from being an endorsement of the world, is a testimony to the character of God. God's love is to be admired not because the world is so big, but because the world is so bad. In fact, the world, in John's usage, comprises no believers at all. Those who come to faith, according to John, are no longer of this world. They have been chosen out of this world, John 15, 19. If Jesus is the Savior of the world, that says a great deal about Jesus, but nothing positive about the world. In fact, it tells us that the world is in need of a Savior. The world is so wicked, in fact, that through this same author, the Apostle John, God forbids Christians to love it or anything in it. 1 John 2, 15 to 17, God says through this Apostle John, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. There is no good way for us to love the world then in that sense, because we cannot redeem it. All that our love of the world would do would be to cause us to participate in the sin of the world. But God is not like us. God is able to love the world with the costly love of redemption. And that's what we're going to see in these verses. God has loved the world in sending his son into the world. Now this brings us well into the, the second answer, you could say, to this question. Why did God give his son? We can say, secondly, God gave his son in order to 
love those in the world. This is a little bit more specific. This is crucial. What is the state of those who belong to this world? Christians are in the world, but not of the world any longer, right? What is the state of those who belong to this world? If we hear carefully in these verses, we can hear the reality of that situation, a situation apart from Christ being sent in several places. We see it in 16 and 17 and 18. Verse 16, here's what we find, is that those who belong to this world are perishing. We read there that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What is the default then? Do you see that the default, according to John 3.16, is that we are in the midst of perishing? It's going to take an action. It will take believing in him in order not to perish. That those who believe in him might not perish but have eternal life. Look at verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. What's the default there? Well, the default is that the world somehow needs saving, doesn't it? He has come in order that, so that the world might be saved through him. The default is a position in need of saving. And it's the same in verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. What's the default? Apart from taking this action, apart from that, everyone stands condemned already. This is not good news. This is the bad news that must precede the good news of the gospel. That's why verse 17 says that Jesus Christ was not sent into the world to condemn the world. It already stood condemned. If you will, this is the presupposition of the whole Christian gospel message. It's the bad news that requires good news. Um, there's a place in Paul's writings we seem to go to fairly often uh, because it is so foundational. It's Ephesians chapter 2. One of the things he will say there is that we were by nature, he's speaking of believers, and speaking in the past tense. He says, we were by nature children of wrath. And then he says, like the rest of mankind. What's the default? This is a dire situation indeed. If God does not act, if he does not love, this is where things lie. This morning we had the first week of a three-week class over here on the distinctives of EF faith and practice. Um, and those who were in that class will remember us reflecting on the fact that if God is as great as the Bible declares him to be, and if we have sinned against him, that his wrath is altogether right. It's not only to be expected, it is demanded by his holiness. The God of the scriptures is not that wicked judge who encounters wrong and winks at it and kind of lets it go on its way. He is utterly not that. So the question is this, how is that God that the Bible would present to us who is good, who is perfectly just, 
How is any part of sinful creation going to experience any of his love? How will they experience anything other than judgment and wrath? The answer is that it is impossible that it be that way. It is impossible if there is no atonement made for the sin that separates. We read the charges in verse 19, and I guess in a way we're reading the the verdict along with the charges. Verse 19 says this, And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. It's no surprise to hear, if you were with us in the early parts of John chapter 1, we were told there, weren't we? This same thing. That God has revealed himself to the world, and the world did not want to receive him. This is not a picture of those outside of God's love trying desperately to come into his light and being barred from out of it. This is a picture of a world that has no desire for his light and that flees from it when it comes. And the response is condemnation. And that's the case for any and all that that applies to. Any who have fallen short of the glory of God, this is the case for them. I wonder if the Bible spells out what percentage of the human race we're talking about. What's the percentage of the human race who have fallen short of the glory of God? Well, yes, thankfully, the Bible does give us a percentage. Romans 3.23 says, There is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's very helpful, Paul. The answer is 100, 100%. So what we're finding is an indictment against the entire human race. When God's word stands back and reviews the evidence... The result is, Romans 3.19, the result is that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. There is a price to be paid for sin, and it will be paid. So I ask again, how is God's love possibly going to be experienced, received by the world? The answer that we find here is, God loved the world thusly. He sent his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And that son, verse 15, was lifted up on a cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, to become sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is the unbelievable miraculous exchange that took place at the cross. The perfect Holy One of God, the spotless Lamb of all spotless lambs, lifted up on a cross to die a cursed death. Because what God saw fit to do in His love for the world was to take the sins of His people and to put them on His Son. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And the effect of that for God's people, for those that Jesus died for, the effect was 
something we could never hope for. Peace with the holy God. Isaiah 53.5 looks ahead to this and it says, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Only in the sending of his son. In fact, not just the sending. Notice how he puts it here in verse 16. Only in the giving of his son, which in light of verse 15, it entails not just sending, but also giving up. Only in that act of love does it become possible for sinners to have God's love poured out on them. So he gave his son because he loved the world. But to be more specific, he gave his son in order to love those in the world. Thirdly, and moving uh, toward verses 20 and 21 now, he gave his son to rescue sinners out of the world. This is a very important piece of what the Bible teaches us concerning the effect of Christ's coming. Maybe you can see, maybe you heard it when we read it, that verses 20 and 21 are contrasts to each other. Did you notice that? John shows us in this contrast, really, the impact behind Jesus' coming. The impact behind his, I like to think of it sometimes as a parachute jump behind enemy lines, rescue mission. What's the impact? Well, we see it in the contrast here. Verse 20, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is really amazing. Uh, and, and we need to look at it closely because it's amazing, and also because it, this is one of those statements that can be easy for us to misunderstand. We can miss the comparison that is being made here, uh, and many do often. Uh, let's look at the two of them here, the evildoers in verse 20. You see verse 20? Those evildoers, when the light comes, they flee from it, right? Why? Why do they flee from the light? What it says is, lest his works should be exposed. Let's think about what that says about that individual. They flee from the light because they love what they are doing. But they don't just love what they're doing. They love what they're doing and they know it to be evil. They feel then something deep inside. They feel an innate sense of shame about the idea of this becoming public knowledge. But they also want to keep living that way, don't they? So there is this, at the same time, there's this cherishing of sin, but there's also a desire that they continue to look good before others. There are things about who they are that they want to keep in the dark so they can continue to present themselves as someone other than that. It's important to see that what we're finding there in verse 20 is self-worship, very much self-worship. I want what I want and I want, to, I want others to see me as I want them to see me. I want it all. I got a kingdom plan for myself. And if light comes and threatens it, I'm going to run from that light because I have a plan for how I am going to live, who I'm going to be, and how others are going to look at me. It's just self-worship. Now, 
verse 21 comes in. What has changed here? The one who has been rescued by Christ, has had his sin forgiven, as we've seen, by a substitutionary atonement on his behalf that he didn't earn or deserve. How is that responded to? It reads like this in verse 21, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. It is true enough for a believer who has been rescued out of the uh, penalty and domination of sin, there will be a change in their behavior, a change in lifestyle, and that's really inevitable as the Holy Spirit works. But it's really not individual actions that are spoken of here. Uh, and not even when he says, uh, whoever does what is true. To do what is true, uh, I've read this from a number of, of those who would know. Uh, I don't know. I'm taking it from them. That that is actually a Semitic figure of speech. This comes from Hebrew into Greek. Uh, and that as a Jewish expression, to do what is true means to act faithfully or to act honorably. Again, does that mean that, they are, that there will be a putting off of particular sins and sin patterns? Yes, certainly. But the emphasis isn't there in what he's saying here in verse 21. The emphasis is on the fact that the one who would act faithfully does what? He comes to the light. That's what he does. He comes to the light. He steps out, refusing to hide his own sinfulness. He confesses his sins. And because of the work of Christ, God is not only just, Romans tells us, but the justifier of the ungodly. So that that sinner may now step into the light and dare. Dare even to expect complete forgiveness of all of their sins. And here, I think, is the part that we can easily misunderstand here. What is that person's motive according to verse 21? Why is this person coming into the light with who they are, stopping in this lifelong obsession of, of choosing how I would represent myself, of shame and hiding my sin so that I can continue to live in it and enjoy it? All of what we saw in verse 20, what's the motive? that's going to bring someone like that into the light. We read there, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now listen, if you hear, if we hear any self-presentation uh, self in the motive here, we have missed the entire point. I think that that translation, carried out in God, can be a little bit hard to see rightly. Let me read a couple of other English translations here. The New American Standard Bible says, so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. That's a little bit more helpful. The Holman Christian Bible puts it this way. Listen to this. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. Do you hear the difference there? What is the motive of coming, living in the light, celebrating the changes and the obedience that can then be seen. What's the motive here? This person, 
to whom Jesus Christ has revealed the glory of God and their utter unworthiness and his willingness to love them and die for them, this person's passion is now to live their life as one more piece of living evidence that any good that would come from one such as he, any of that good is simply a display of the power and goodness of God. That's what he desires. Is that man, is that woman eager for good works? Yes. Why? Not to earn their standing before God. They only came into the light because of the, the possibility of forgiveness that was earned on their behalf. They're zealous for good works because now, in the forgiveness that we have in Christ Jesus and in the work of the Spirit and His being given to us as a pledge of our inheritance, now every good work that comes from their life is one more display of what God is able to accomplish, even in one such as them. So what then is the result of Jesus' rescuing sinners out of this world? Well, even in this verse... <clears throat> There's more than one angle to the answer, but I would suggest to you, based on what we've seen, that the defining element here, in terms of this result in this person's life, the defining element is humility. An otherworldly humility, which longs to show just how true it is that the glory for our salvation and all that salvation entails and produces the glory for it all is God's. To him be the glory. It's a life that shouts freely and joyfully, when I was his enemy, Christ died for me. I earned none of this. He saw an enemy and chose to have pity and mercy and to put his love upon that one, even as he fled from the light. Christ as my king has subdued me to himself and I will forever be an object lesson for his grace and kindness. He died for me when I was his enemy. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So I would ask us this morning, We could put it this way. How do you feel about your sins and shortcomings? And I mean that in this way. How hard are you working to try to appear all together and just fine, thank you very much? Can I tell you that that is, according to verse 20, a great description of the world. I'm going to work very hard to appear all together, and just fine, thank you very much. Any light that would suggest otherwise, I am out of there, because I am just fine, thank you very much. Now, the point here is not that we would go about bearing all our failures in public. There's some awkwardness at the end of that road. I'm not talking about that at all. Uh, but the, the, the point most certainly is one about a particular posture that is fitting for a Christian. This is what sets believers apart. We have a posture of transparency regarding what the Bible has taught us about ourselves. 
we're able to interact with one another and with the watching world and say, oh, that critique of me is true, and there's much more where that comes from. I'm more of a sinner than you know, but I know a Savior strong enough and loving enough and willing enough to save even one like me. Can you sense how freeing that is? See, it frees us from guilt and shame that characterizes a life lived in the darkness. We ought to be ashamed of our sin, but something has been done concerning our sin. Jesus Christ has died and his blood has washed us. So we must not think and speak and feel about it as if that's not the case. It's the kind of thing that we have always sung about as Christians. I think it was James who led us through a study of William Cooper here in the last few months. I forget if that's right. He's the one who wrote the words, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. We sing about this stuff. One of my sons has been learning on the piano recently the song, Wonderful Grace of Jesus. I grew up hearing my father sing a different part in that song on the octaves. I don't even know how to describe it, and I loved it. And I've always, so we've always told them that this is Grandpa's favorite song. So that's how they didn't even know the name of it. This is Grandpa's favorite song. I've gotten, because he's, we're hearing this on the piano, I've gotten to have it displayed often for me uh, in recent weeks, and it's been such a pleasure to hear the words of it in my mind. Greater far than all my sin and shame. The grace of Jesus. This is the stuff of the songs of sinners who have been loved by God in Christ. Secondly and finally, I would ask us, do we see clearly from this passage why Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except by me? Can you believe that there would be Christians, excuse me, could you, can you believe that there would be people who call themselves Christians who would think that that's a matter worthy of some debate? That there may be, perhaps be other paths to God. Jesus' statement, no one comes to the Father except by me, is simply a statement of the fact of things. If what we've seen this morning is true, if Christ comes as the light of the world and men flee from that light, those men have refused the only way that God can love them without being a sinner himself. If he loves sinners outside of Christ, he is guilty. He has violated his own character by winking at sin. Jesus Christ has atoned for sin and only there is there any way that the Holy One could love sinners like us? God has seen to it that it will be known that as Christ will say in John 15, quite a while from now, he who hates me hates my Father also. What you think about Jesus and what you do with him is the most important thing about you.
Would you pray with me? Father, we indeed do come before you in Jesus' name this morning because there is no other way to come before you. We ask you to forgive us our lack of gratitude, how often we grumble, how often we let ourselves feel discontent with this or that of the lot that you have assigned to us. Forgive us for those displays when you have given us nothing less than your own, only begotten Son. How loved we are in Christ. Lord, I pray that you would equip us for this week that is ahead of us by your word to live lives of thankfulness and of a determined passion to show your goodness to others, goodness that you have shown to us in the person of your Son. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.